Friends, welcome back to another episode of the Just Follow Jesus podcast, where we try and make things simple. Well, actually, uh, in this podcast, we we try and make things a little bit more complex or nuanced, at least. We dive into the text of the week a little bit deeper to find out, hey, is there more to be wrestled with? Or were there things that hit the cutting room floor that are still worth us talking about? This week, we have with us the eloquent, the euphonious, the hilarious, the insightful, incisive, wise, and witty Nick Gilmore. I don't think I've ever given anybody that many qualifiers or descriptors when I introduced them on the podcast. But anyways, he was preaching on the first half of Mark chapter 7, this debate between Jesus and the Pharisees. And I think for having the subject be the law and human motivation, we managed to have a an interesting conversation this week. We cover a lot of ground. You learn one of Nick's own uh, nicknames for himself. Ooh, nicknames, pun not intended there, but we'll take it. And we have conversations about, hey, the, the distinction between, or what's the difference between pharisaical uh, hypocrisy that Jesus calls out in this text and Christian spiritual formation or discipleship. What's the difference between the religion that God abhors and the one that is God honoring? We talk about, uh, hey, where do motivations come from and what is the appropriate course of action when the desires that we recognize we have are not fruitful ones, are not God-honoring ones. Um, So what are we to do in that situation? We have a rousing discussion towards the end about some theological ethics and what to do with this issue of moral absolutes. And we spend a fair amount of our time talking about uh, what to do with the law and Christian practice. So all sorts of fun things for us to reflect on and to enjoy or to be bored by. I mean, it's entirely up to you, friends. But regardless, I'm thrilled for you to join us this week for another conversation on the Just Follow Jesus podcast. And if if you would, if you've been enjoying this, would you take a moment and wherever you're listening to this to, whether that's Google Play, whether that's Spotify, whether that's the Apple podcast, would you rate and review the show? The reason why that's important is because it helps other people who are not plugged into our Jesus community stumble upon it. It raises its visibility. Uh, This isn't to make myself or any of the other guys feel good. I don't think any of us would take the time to look at the the reviews, the ratings. So if you don't like it, then be honest. Uh, But if you do, it would would really help the show and uh, friends and, and neighbors and the random people out there that God knows needs to hear conversations like this. So without further ado, and sorry for the shameless plug there, we have another conversation this week with Nick Gilmore, Mark 7, Just Follow Jesus, friends. Oh, baby, you want to take Gilmore roll? <laughs> you know, I'm really glad that I hit record, so we have that because that's going to be the that's going to be the opening of this week's episode. You heard it here from his very own lips, friends. Uh, one take, Gilmore is unfiltered, yeah. a, a nickname no redos. that Nick has bestowed upon himself. And you know, I can say. Over the course of seven years in production here, um, he's earned the nickname. So <laughs> I don't think that you're, uh, you know, being too self-congratulatory. I think it's just accurate. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Nick, you uh, you got a particularly 
easy passage. Uh, it wasn't dense at all. It wasn't. Uh, it didn't involve any arcane bits of of the law or pedantic conversations between uh, Jesus or the Pharisees. It was really action packed, um, full of you know exorcism. No, I'm kidding. Obviously. Uh, thanks so much for uh, just the time, the effort that you put into preparing um, this sermon for us. And That's I'm curious, what was your, um, just maybe this is more of like a, the emotional, spiritual side, but in preparing, you know, for this, it's an, a heavy topic. You entitled the sermon Sacred Cows or something along that line. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you did that brave work of inviting um, a number of us from the community to kind of uh, popcorn with you and put up words on the, uh, on the screen about what we sensed to be within our particular culture and our particular Jesus community, um, kind of those sacred cows or those idols or those, those topics that may have been creeping towards an idolatrous state of central importance when in fact they're actually secondary or tertiary. So um, naming that it was a, it's a fraught, Topic where um, angels fear to tread. Uh, what was what was it like preparing for this message? Uh, well, I mean, it's always a blessing to have time to spend in the Word in in earnest. You know, um, uh, the the week uh, of the sermon was a um, a heavier week. It seems like a year ago now, but it was a week when all the votes were being counted. Mm-hmm. The midterms had just happened. Tensions were high. I um, always think during those weeks, everything just seems of utmost importance. Mm. And then uh, here we are, you know, three, you know, uh, or, or days down the line, and it's and it seems of somewhat less importance, um, you know, because I think that there are certain things that are of ultimate importance that are enduring, mm. and there are other things that, at least for my part, you know, like ensorcel me, grab my gaze, and make me focus on them and, and that's all that I think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they blow through, you know, they're, they're, they're transitory, they're, they're ephemeral or whatever the term is, you know, like the things that seem important, but ultimately they're, they're not of greatest importance. Mm. Um, so I think it's good to sift through that stuff theologically more than anything else. I think it's important to sift through that stuff. Yeah, so it was uh, it was one of those weeks. What do you think about it? Uh, sorry, this is just a, a random question yeah. that's coming to mind, but uh, what is it that you, th- why in politics in particular, um, do we so often default towards, I mean, the strategy tra- strategy seems to be um, to try and make everything of central importance to, to whip the vote as it were. Um, why do you think that's something that is, we're so susceptible to in the political space? Well, I think that there's my my unguarded answer to that is I think that there's there's twin things going on, both of which exacerbate each other from those who are in the political sphere from their end, they're leveraging fear mm. and hopes, depending or sometimes both um, to gain votes. and they're masters at doing it, they're masters at manipulation. so so that's from that end. From our end, <clears throat> as a general populace, you know, the hoi polloi, we, we ascribe hope to things uh, a little too quickly. Mm. I think for us, things that we, we put our, you know, the Bible frequently talks about putting your, your hope in man or your hope in, in humankind mm. um, and our capacity to do things. I think that we're susceptible to that. 
Um, so I think that there's at least those two things going on, as well as all the other stuff, our normal sort of prejudices and our echo chambers that we exist in more and more. You know, I was talking with a friend last night about the democratisation of information that that we end up now getting our news sources from really one uh, place or, or a sort of a, you know, a, a, a general part of the, the city. We don't travel all over the city if, if it was a city of mm. knowledge. You know, mm-hmm. we just go to a certain neighbourhood all the time and we're frequently there. And so those things, other things exacerbate it, but I think at core root it's those two, those two things, manipulation from one end and susceptibility from the other end. Mm. Do you think that susceptibility is connected to um, an unwillingness to accept responsibility for um, the role that we play in creating healthy communities? Yeah, no, for sure. Sometimes it's because we want to um, subcontract out responsibility. I think it's that um, in part. And we have variations of that, you know, all the time. Like here at church in kids' ministry, I often hear people talking about, well, the kids' ministry people, it's their job to do the spiritual care of my child. I'm like, no, it's not. It's Mm. our job as parents. And they can help, but you can't subcontract out that. Mm. Mm -hmm. Or school with with teachers. It, it, It was my responsibility as a parent, my child's education, and teachers can help. But So I think that I think we can do that, funnily enough, and it'll sound paradoxical, but I also think that there's a, a sense that people have of um, of powerlessness as well. Mm. I'm just one vote. I'm just one little bit of flotsam and jetsam here being blown around on the sea. And so I'm going to, you know, cling to whatever log I can find, something that's of more substance or greater than myself. So, yeah, there's probably a few things going on there, mm. but uh, who knows? <laughs> Well, thanks for going down that that bunny trail. Uh, <laughs> although it's not it's not disconnected from the the locus of this passage, because really what's going on here is this disagreement between uh, the Pharisees or the uh, the tradition of the elders, um, mm. the midrash and rabbinical Judaism as it had been developing at that mm. point and has continued to, which we'll get to in a little bit, uh, and uh, the way of Jesus or um, a a way of being, um, a spirituality, a heart posture that Jesus is calling us back towards, which is perhaps more authentic. But both of them have in common, as does the political comments that we were just talking about, uh, the ordering and organization of, of common life and mm. uh, the determination of what is what is good, the good life, what is ethical, what is unethical, and where we draw those boundary lines. And so... I don't think that we got off on too terribly of a wrong foot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does get the core thing because, gosh, we're just so dreadful, us humans. We just make idols of things so quickly, even mm. wonderful things like family or or here, the law. The law is a wonderful thing, but if it becomes an idol or, I don't know, the word of God, there's a term bibliolatry where we worship the Bible of God rather than worship the God of the Bible. Mm. Like even the most wonderful things, we're just... We're just insanely terrible as humans. We we make even the the best of things into idols. They're not the ultimate thing. Ultimately, it's the Lord, right? Yeah. So, yeah. how would you describe in practice bibliolatry? Well, um, so I know I need to watch out because this is a, a tendency uh, for me for sure. I because um, I love the Word of God. I love studying it. 
And and it's uh, let me say I've noticed the tendency in me is when it it starts to trend towards being more of an intellectual understanding or more of an understanding of, well, this fits with this, fits with that, rather than moving me towards wonder at the author of it, the ultimate author, through uh, and in um, uh, collaboration or or by by using human authors, surely, like I believe in that. Um, But, but, you know, when I can... start to to study it as a an artifice or or a if that's a word you know as a um as something in and of itself rather than seeing it as a means to an end mm. um yeah I, I see that i see that happening and i and then and then probably the worst manifestation of that in myself and sometimes others is when we weaponize uh scripture mm. to demean others to exclude others Kind of the things that I was talking about, power over, yeah, uh, type type stuff, one upmanship, those sorts of things. They they can they can creep in. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And would you just uh, do you think that in the Christian life there's ever a um, it's ever appropriate to exercise power over, or is it always power under? Yeah. And how I'm, would you define those two? Well, I mean. Um, the term actually comes from a theologian called Greg Boyd. Is the first time I've heard of that, and I, I don't agree with him on, on all of his positions, but I think he's right on this one, where he talks about Jesus and the the power of the cross being power under, not power over. You know, um, in in terms of power that oppresses, power that dictates, but rather, and through Christ and His work on the cross, it's power under, power serving. You know, because um, he he came to um, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mm. You know, um, and so so in that sense, I, I think uh, let me. I I think there's times when we need to stand up against oppression as the people of God. I I do believe that when we need to stand up, say against bullies of different kinds. Um, but even that is is not really power over. Whenever I'm leveraging whatever it is, if it's physical power or or intellectual mental power or some sort of social power, social moray or or some social structure, whenever I'm I'm leveraging that um, and using that for my ends rather than letting God and and serving others and letting God inspire them for change from the inside out. Mm. I think that that's when I, I trend towards that. I mean, it, here at North Coast Calvary, you know, one of our stated values is adult-to-adult relationships, and I really appreciate that. It's not my job or anyone's job, Ryan's job or any of those who preach more than me to be those who come and dictate to people what they should think, how they should think, mm. where they should go. It's the point, well, look, it appears our best understanding is this is what the Word of God says, and it appears that this would be, you know, uh, considered wisdom on the subject, um, and it's up to you. So, what are you going to do mm. with fear and trembling? How are you going to work out your salvation? So, I think, I think it's, I don't know, I, I don't know if I'd say it in absolute terms, as in always, but I'd say uh, I can't. Let me say I can't think of a circumstance where power over um, is is a good thing for broken humans. For the Lord, of course, it is. He's the sovereign one. Mm. He's the only one uh, who, being perfect, is able to exercise power over 
without there being uh, sin involved. Mm. Great answer. <laughs> um, well, a couple, a couple more questions I want to keep asking you, uh, inspired by the text in your sermon. Um, so in this, so I want to talk about the distinction between uh, playing a part, like Jesus uses the term hypocrites. Yeah. It's a, it's a Greek theater term, uh, somebody up on stage playing a part. Um, and I think we would probably contrast that in our day and age by the idea of authenticity. I mean, we kind of live during the age of the cult of authenticity um, right. in, in a lot of ways, good and and perhaps overblown. So the distinction <laughs> between uh, playing a part and um, or, you know, the law, the law as the Pharisees understood it was, uh, I mean, the purpose of it was to create and to maintain a distinct people group with an identity. Right. Right. Um, and in doing so to try and honor God. Mm. And we typically only talk about or think about the, the Pharisees in a pejorative sort of way, but uh, meaning that we, we judge them as the bad guys mm. when in reality during their day and age, they're, they're terribly earnest. Uh, they're ones who, who cared about God, who cared about the law, who cared about their faith in profound ways and lived that out in practical ways. Mm. So I, I, um, and yet Jesus is so often calling them to account saying, Hey, you've, you've missed the mark. Mm. Um, and you've placed the cart before the horse, or you've placed things of secondary or tertiary importance as central importance. So what for us as Christians, um, because we talk about spiritual disciplines all the time. We talk mm. about the importance of, of, you know, participating in Jesus community, you know, the, of prayer, of study of scripture, of, I mean, these are all rituals that we say, if we, if you participate in them, they're one, oftentimes markers of Christian maturity and mm. two lead towards, uh, you know, they're, they're the, a role that you can play in the process of sanctification. Right. Um, and, so how is it, how is Christian discipleship or Christian spiritual formation any different than what the Jews were practicing? Wow. How many months have we got to answer this one? Um, um, 1.5. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think that the, the key to, to getting into that question, to kind of muddling through an answer has to be motivation, like who's the ultimate one that we're seeking to glorify and honour. Mm. Um, if and, and by the way, I don't think the Pharisees nor Christians today are monolithic. I think there's there's variation within both of those bodies. Gosh, I mean, there's variation within me from one week to the next one day or minute to the next, you know, mm-hmm. on motivations and often they're mixed. Often there's more than one going on at one time. I'll say that. But in terms of like is my is my ultimate motivation to spend time with the Lord, to have an increasing wonder, to have an increasing heart for the world, that inclusive heart, uh, God's heart, you know, uh, for the world, uh, just a hunger for holiness. If my motivation is, is that, then I think it's, it's indicative that it's coming from me wanting to honor him, me wanting to be more like him, me being fueled by His spirit, seeking him out more. Um, but if it's something where I'm trying to be smarter than others or somehow more holified uh, than others or 
or somehow being more on an in-group because of a certain thing that I'm doing. Like I, I think I think that that I think that that really gets to the core of it. Mm. Um, all all of those all of those things, whether it's the Old Testament law for them, whether for us it's the spiritual disciplines, and I know we're going to get into that the the way that the law applies to us today. Um, if if we're doing it, and and one of the by the way, one of the ways to tell whether you're doing it for the Lord or for others is how much of it remains in secret. Mm. Or how much are you just happening to mention with a humble brag that I was doing thus and so, you know? Or, or I've never done that, <laughs> but you know what I mean, Mike. So, so how much of it is that? How much of it's just us and the Lord? Like no mm. one will ever find out about that radical sacrificial giving that you did, or no one will ever know about that that time you spent just wrestling with Him over a really deep uh, spiritual or theological question. You know, and, and the the anguish, uh, anguish prayers and such that you you've had, uh, no one knows. Or are we mentioning it when we're in our home group? Well, I was praying for an hour and a half the other day and such and such. That's kind of a you know that's when it becomes about a show. Uh, J D. Salinger called it phoniness. Mm. You know, it was um, it was a big thing in Catcher in the Rye, mm-hmm. and I think that we have an aversion to it. Uh, I think we innately have an aversion to it, and I think that's it's because. We have, um, you know, God's image. We're all in God's image, and I think He does. Mm. He doesn't like it. It's a hollow shell. It's religiosity. It's it's fakeness. So there's a there's a good part of um, our our desire, current desire for authenticity. I think where it, and you mentioned you sort of you know um, intimated this where it leads to error is where we think well I can just be unguarded all the time on everything that I think and. You know, well, you just do you, and I'm like, well, that doesn't really. That's probably not a good idea because I'm actually a bit of an a hole sometimes, and I, <laughs> I shouldn't do me. Actually, I should do Jesus. We should do Jesus. You know, mm. I shouldn't just do me. Uh, it's it's that's just like relativism. You know, everyone do your own thing, and and you'll be fine. Um, and uh, and you know, and just be unguarded, and just say what you think. And I, I don't think that's right. Most of the things that I think, I I really shouldn't say. Mm. I should think about saying them, and then I should I should decide not to say them. <laughs> <laughs> What's that that proverb where words of many sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Mm. Um, so yeah, so authenticity is good. Um, but unfiltered all the time, just being me, this is who I am, that can become a justification for for selfishness and sin in the other direction. But I do think that the core of it, the heart of it, really does get does get to gospel truth, mm. the desire to be real before the Lord, to, um, you know, how to say this, um, I would encourage anyone listening to just be very wary of Christian leaders or those who are speaking who always seem to have everything together. I just, I, I, I doubt it. Mm. <laughs> I just, I, I just don't think it's real. I don't think it's right for when folks are preaching to be, uh, Mark Foreman's talked about this, to be kind of open processing mm-hmm. on those who are listening. That That's not right either to use it as a kind of a, a collective, you know, counseling session. I don't think right. that's right either. Um, but I think that we need to be honest about our sin and uh, and real about our heart uh, for Christ. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to go a little bit deeper because a lot of what you're talking about there, you're 
we're we're in the realm of motivation, which is exactly where Jesus takes us in the text. You yeah. know, he the ultimate distinction is you know he makes hey it's not it's not the outward thing that makes somebody unclean. It's that which proceeds from within, from from mm. a man's heart, from mm. the center of their being, right. their will, their appetites, their desires. So my question is, where do those come from? Where do our desires? Where and here's so. Say you're you're listening to this podcast and you're like, yeah, yeah, Joseph, Nick, this sounds all, all great or whatnot. Um, but I know that I should do X, Y, Z Christian practice, Christian value, you know, like I should want to do those things, but I'm running to this problem where I don't want to, you right. know? So, so what do we, what are you, what's your suggestion for us? Maybe just practical pastoral advice in when we discover, when we can name and confess that, Hey, uh, a lot of the appetites or the de- desires that I have within me are are bent, are sinful, are uh, they're not aligned with <clears throat> God's heart. Um, look, what what are we to do? My answer is a truly dreadful answer, for which I apologise for what I'm about to say. Um, but uh, it's it's like broccoli; you just got to eat it, <laughs> you know. And the more that you eat it, the more you realise, well. It's not really that bad. I mean, it's certainly not as scrumptious as bacon or, you know, chocolate cake. It's just not. And let's face it, it's not going to be. But the more you do it, the uh, the more you find the desire in you uh, raises up for it. Mm. So there's there's no there's no getting around it that whether it's anything, spiritual practices, any of that stuff, um, that uh, that the more I the more that I do it, the more I think, yeah, I, I see the value in this. I'm actually it's taken a dozen and three days, but here I am and I actually really appreciate having this moment to sit quietly and wait with the Lord. Um, it's like a muscle, you know, mm. if you like, so I'm a, I'm a surfer and, and often take folks surfing who, <coughs> excuse me, who, who don't surf much. Whenever I take them, I say, look, you might last for half an hour because they get out and they get what's called spaghetti arms where your arms are just, you know, and you don't, <laughs> you, you lack the fitness to do it. But once you've been surfing for a long time, um, actually you don't even notice. You'd surf for, you know, two, uh, in my son's case, uh, three hours at a time, you know, because um, he doesn't have gainful employment yet being 14. Um, now that's happening next year. But, um, but you know, where, where you don't even notice the fitness aspect because you're enjoying it so much, mm. enjoying the – and, I, and I, think, uh, I think it's like that. I think that the more you do it, the more you see the value in doing it. And I know that that's a hard answer. Um, it's not going to be instant gratification. What is instant gratification is bacon and chocolate cake. I mean, straight away. <laughs> your taste buds are just ready for them. You just love them, scrumptious. Broccoli, uh, not so much. But three weeks from now, you know, and two years from now. Um, yeah, so that's my answer. Sorry. No, it's, uh, yeah, it's not It's not a sexy answer, Nick. But it <laughs> it does have that homespun ring of truth to it, um, which is infuriating to the sophisticants within us and uh, to those of us that are driven by impulsivity and who just want chocolate cake. I will say, you can make broccoli tasty. You know how I know? Because I've Uh, done it. So you take the broccoli and you get... uh, I prefer doing this in a cast iron skillet, personally. Um, And the key is enormous amounts of butter. Oh, right. So if you basically... If you, I see. If you if you cook it to the point where it's almost like a little crispy, 
and there's been enough butter and salt, well, then you don't even notice that it's broccoli anymore. That's that's what's known as the Mary Poppins uh, argument. Uh, a spoonful yes. of sugar helps the medicine go down. Yeah, that could be too. Stick. I mean, and, hey, hey, let me say this. Let me say this. Um, there are ways to study the Bible in a in a truly boring manner. Mm. There are ways to do it, and I'm sorry to my children that I visited this upon them at some time. So try to think, well, wh- where are they at? What would be intriguing to them? And, you know, I'll sort of speak in different voices um, or, or you know, um, get a Bible that fits them or, you know, so there are boring ways to do it. There are funner ways to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's okay. God is all right with us enjoying it. We don't have to hate ourselves and, you know, hate spiritual disciplines. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, a little butter now and then. Yeah, I'm, I'm down with that. <laughs> I really, I really want to hear some of the voices that you use. <laughs> well, ironically, my, and my kids called me out on this because being Australian growing up, you know, it's always um, if we could ever beat England in the uh, the cricket or the rugby or, or whatever, that was a big deal, uh-huh. you know. So my kids uh, pointed out to me that whenever I do accents, say if I'm doing pilot, it's always in a high-class English accent. <laughs> whenever I'm doing, you know, the soldiers who are mocking Jesus, it's always in a lowbrow English accent. But whenever I do Jesus or the disciples, it's in a very strongly Australian accent. And uh, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, prejudice is coming out. There, uh, there we go. Hey, well, you know, as long as you name them and own them. Um, can I please hear your pilot impression, though? <laughs> Truth? What is truth? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Monty Python. Oh, oh I, I love, I love uh, you, English people out there. You're great. Um, man, I've got all sorts of wonderful images of you studying uh, the Bible with your kids right now. Um, and sp- uh, speaking of, of fun and ridiculous words, uh, you used the King James version in a particular verse. Uh, what, what was that verse? I think it's uh, it's James one. I think it's uh, twenty one or something like that. Yeah, but uh, yep, contains uh, um, a particular uh, a particularly memorable f- phrase: superfluity of naughtiness or superfluity of superfluity. naughtiness. Yeah, filthiness or superfluity of naughtiness. Wait, so yeah. So how yeah. do we define superfluity? Um, well, an abundance of you know uh, superfluity, like an, an abundance of naughtiness. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wasn't making fun of it. I, I actually really love the King James, love the poetry of it. And like I said, you know, uh, was it uh, 1611? It was first published. Um, you know, it was phenomenal. It was a game changer mm. for the the world. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if any other, I don't think any other publication in the history of the world has had such a huge impact. Mm. As that so I, I I do love it um you know I think that that some of the um the the manuscripts that it's based off uh based off of have now been superseded by subsequent it's called source criticism but subsequent manuscript evidence and so you know there's things like that mm. um so I wasn't but I wasn't making fun of it I actually thought it was great but I mean the point of it was that it goes on and it says and 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 uh, with meekness receive the engrafted word I think in the King James but you know, um, the NIV, I, I'm not exactly sure. I'm quoting it off my head here, but it's, you know, with, with humility um, ha- have the word planted in you because mm. that's able to save your souls. It, it's a word that's planted in you that germinates in you, puts its roots deep into you, 
um, and and that 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 will grow fruit, mm. and it's as actually is able to save your souls, because it's um, it's not a transformed um, vocabulary that's going to save you. It's a transformed life, mm-hmm. and it's transformed by the power of the Spirit and by the the grace of God through Christ. Surely, like I'm not advocating for. Um, for works-based salvation at all. I mean, grace is is phenomenal, right? Um, but the the proof of it is in the pudding. Mm. Um, yeah, grace alone saves, but grace that saves is never alone. Uh, I think uh, it might be faith. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is is never alone. I think uh, Luther said. Mm. Mm. Which kind of brings us back to a question I, I wanted to ask. Um, which this technic this would qualify as a nerd zone question. Um, okay. <clears throat> Because <laughs> we've been talking about the heart, Jesus has been talking about the heart. We've been talking about motivations. We've been talking about how a life of of true or authentic faith is one that's marked by an inward disposition, inward attitude, um, an inward will that is concerned not with the outward appearance of things, but is concerned with de- an increasing devotion to wonder of enjoyment in. Uh, the source of all things God. And then that's expressed through a fruitful life of service, of sacrificial generosity of Mm. all the hallmarks of the spirit that we, that we love to, to meditate on. Um, so total depravity. Oh, hello. Where do you stand on that issue? I mean, you know, (laughs) I'm allowed to ask questions like this. So, you know, our friend, uh, (laughs) Augustine, um, you know, tulip, all that jazz. We won't, we won't, we don't need to go into, um, the finer points Mm. of five point Calvinism, but, um, yeah, I, I do, I ask it because I think that it is an important question for us to, uh, to grapple with in this day and age, um, because there's competing philosophies of human anthropology. Like, hey, are we intrinsically good? Are we basically good? Are we basically evil? Are we totally evil? You know? Yeah. Well, you know, of the five points of Calvinism, I often say I'm a 2.75 point Calvinist, but none of them are whole numbers. The one that I'm closest on to the traditional Calvinist position is actually total depravity, mm. I think. Um, and so, yeah, uh, uh are we totally depraved? The answer is yes. Are we utterly depraved? The answer is no. Mm. And the best analogy I've heard for that is the difference between if you had a glass of pure water and you put in there a droplet of cyanide, uh, would you drink the water? The answer is no, because it's poisoned. So it's totally poisoned. Mm. But it's not utterly poisoned. It's not a glass full of cyanide. Mm. Um, or even a glass full of cyanide in which you put a droplet of water, which would, you know, uh, be almost utterly. So it's not utterly, but it is totally. And so the, the trouble is that, that sin is a contaminant, and I can say this with much, uh, sadly, first-hand experience, that sin comes in and it contaminates everything in my own life, right? And so so I, I am totally depraved. There's nothing I can do to make myself right before God. So I, I definitely err to that side. What I would say is um, uh, to condition that, I, I suppose, is that I also believe that, that humans are created in God's image. Imago Dei, all of us have capacity, yes, for great evil. I, I know that, sadly, um, but because of myself. 
let alone others. Uh, and yet, it's an and, it's not a but. And yet, we also have capacity for great good. Even folks who are in the most broken and bedraggled uh, physically, morally state have a capacity for unbelievable acts of kindness and, and goodness. Um, and, and so, and I, and I think that, that who is our ultimate self? Who is our fake self? Who's our ultimate self? And this comes back to parenting 101. You know, I, I say to my kids, well, that's not really who you are. I know that, that such and such behavior, which of course is not the behavior that's the issue. It's the heart that it came from, but such and such hard to do that and, and beat your brother with a sausage. You know, I know that that was, that was not your true self. Your true self is someone who I know is kind, who I know is good. And I know that you've chosen bad decisions and you win or lose by the way you choose. So there's going to be consequences. Bash the brother with a sausage equals, you know, miss out on the, you know, afternoon uh, story or something like that. But, um, uh, but, but, what is our true self? Who is our true self? And, and for me, that fills me with great hope because it's coming back, right? It's coming back to who God has truly made us to be. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I'd say total depravity, yes. Uh, does that lead to, uh, you know, total disillusionment and sadness? The answer is no, um, because it's not utterly and it's also redeemable uh, mm. through Christ. What do you think of that? B minus. <laughs> B minus. That'll do. I'll take it. <laughs> uh, no, I think that that's a, a really helpful distinction that you made there between total and utter. And I, I love how you preempted my next question was going to be, well, yeah, what do we do with, uh, you know, the history of Western Christianity in particular? Um, one could argue that we've unduly focused on the uh, the depraved aspect of our nature and to the point where we have tried to erase the unerasable image of God. And we forget mm. about the, um, that it, the, so the story begins with blessing. It begins with wholeness, begins with goodness and, uh, and ends with it and too. ends with it. Yeah. 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 So we, mm. um, we castrate oftentimes the power of the potential, that power of God within us. Hmm. Yeah. And Jesus, you know, we talked about this last time we had the podcast, Jesus' victory over sin and death is now ours. Mm-hmm. You know, the end of 1 Corinthians 15. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and it, and it goes on and it says, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, dear you know, beloved ones of the Lord, stand firm, let nothing move you, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. So so out of that, out of that hope comes if it's true hope that we have um, taken into our very hearts will um, come a transformed life, not out of duty, but out of stoke, out of wonder, out of amazement. Mm-hmm. Well, let's pivot from that beautiful image of a life uh, overflowing with Stoke. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And I know there's a couple of questions or a couple of things that you didn't get a chance to unpack or 
sorry, I'm going to try and not use that term because <laughs> I recently learned both my mother and my father abhor the the uh, the Christian use of the term unpack. They think it's just been it's been battered to death that everybody said uses it all of the time. And so I'm going to okay. try and be more creative in my speech. Mom, dad, if you're listening to this, Nick, don't unpack for us, but further elucidate, oh, expound, hello. explicate, explicate, massage, <laughs> unfold, interrogate uh, a couple of things for us. One, which is this. Uh, well, first, I'd love, I'd love actually for you to try and define a couple terms for you. How would you define evil and wickedness? I mean, wow, that's a <clears throat> massive thing. How would I define? How would I define evil? Well, it's certainly bigger than we commonly perceive. I think evil is done uh, whenever whenever something is done outside of um, glorifying God. I think it's evil. So something can actually look good on the outside, but actually be be evil. For example, um, well, I don't know. Maybe evil's too strong, but it's it's not perfect. So I think that it is a binary. Things, are, you know, it's it's God who's perfect, and then it's everything else, right? And so anything that's whether it's loving my wife, but I'm loving her because I want to serve her, but I'm also really loving her because I wanted to scratch my back later that night. I mean, it's kind of a little bit, you know, a little bit tainted. Mm. And so to call it evil, you think, wow, that's just so harsh. All you were doing was loving your wife with a mixed motivation. Well, yeah, but, you know, so so evil is a lot bigger of a problem mm. than we would like to um, put out there. And then, of course, it's when it concertinas on itself and it amplifies itself and it goes into a self-feedback loop and it leads to really, you know, very awful things with uh, with ongoing ramifications. Um and I think wickedness is kind of a, a sibling of it, but wickedness is is kind of um, giving ourselves over to that, getting in the habit of giving ourselves over to it, um, having our conscience seared or calloused, as it were, and um, and getting into the habit of perpetual, ongoing sort of sin. Mm. Oh, I think of it as that. Thank you. That's helpful. <laughs> um, okay. The role of law and Christian practice now. How does that? That's I know that's something that um, probably came up in the minds of a number of people when they were reading this passage, and we're seeing mm. this debate between the the Pharisees and and Jesus, and they're kind of they're going back and forth over um, over the law as given to Moses and as developed through rabbinic practice and and thought. So, help us understand from your perspective. Uh, what is the role of the law now in Christian practice and belief? Well, yeah, I mean, this led to a lot of conversations afterwards. Um, I, and, you know, in fact, one this last weekend with a fellow said, Nick, do you believe that we ought to follow the Mosaic law, you know, as opposed to the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, you know, in, mm-hmm. in uh, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, seeing seeing that as separate. We ought to live by that, but then as opposed to the, you know, the uh, the rest of the Mosaic law, the rest of the what sometimes people call the Levitical laws, he said, uh, do you think we're bound by by that? And I said no, but I think he took it in the wrong um, way um, because, um, what I mean, you know, Jesus came not to annul the law but to fulfill the law 
And for instance, I said, well, uh, well, that would mean, therefore, we have to abide by the whole Ten Commandments. Um, and, of course, I do think the Ten Commandments are very important. By the way, I think the Mosaic Law is as well. I'm going to get to how we apply that in a second. But, um, but I said to him, well, the Fourth Commandment, you know, that we ought to have a day of rest each week, um, and have and have a Sabbath where we do no work. I said most weeks I do that, and I do think it's wonderful life and practice, a rhythm of grace to do that. But I'm not a Sabbatarian. I don't believe from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown we ought to do nothing. We ought to you know do no work. I do chores on my day off. Um, there's some weeks where I don't get to have a day off, um, and so you know I. And I know that that's a controversial one and some people say, well, you really ought to and things like that. I mean, um, and, and the truth is that it is good. God has, has given us uh, these rhythms of spiritual practices as, as blessings um, that we get to do. I don't think we have to do. There's times where even, you know, when I'm preparing a sermon where I don't get to have a full day off on that day, I, I do a bit of reading and thinking and how can I explain this concept I, I i do that um and uh and so anyway but but how do we how do we apply the law to ourselves today you know there's um there's some i was reading an article by rc sproul who, who talked about uh what of the law remains will be that which is core to god's character some people call it the moral law you know there's a ceremonial law about the way we do things in the temple and chop up animals, or um, you know, or have the the tassels and the um, on our garments and the the long sideburns and such like that. That has to do with with that point in time for the people of God, namely the, the Jews under the old covenant. And uh, and then there's the civil law that has to do with you know um, the way society should be structured. Um, and then there's the moral law, and then some people would say, well, only the moral law remains. Do not steal, do not kill, do not covet, those sort of things. I think that that is largely right, but it's it's not totally perfect because there's a lot of principles that we can draw out of the first two, out of the ceremonial and the, and the civil uh, laws. You know, there's there's things to do with care for oneself, there's things to do uh, you know, less out of the ceremonial, I suppose, but things to do with that. Um, you know, I don't know, tithing that we ought to give our the, our most unblemished animal and we ought to do that first to the Lord, you know, under the old covenant. The principle of that, the way the principle of that applies now on this side of Christ is that we ought to bring our first fruits to the Lord um, or we get to bring our first fruits to the Lord, whether that's tithing, and there's a whole big discussion around, well, should we tithe? Do we have to tithe? Well, I think we get to tithe. Should it be my net salary? Should it be my gross salary? Well, the principle of it being the first fruits would probably trend towards thinking it's your gross salary. So sorry to get in our money business, but, you know, um, work that out. But but what about what about uh, civil law? You know, th- the, the Levitical laws are replete with calls to care for the orphans, to care for the widows, to care for the sojourners, the aliens, the refugees, whatever synonym you want to put in there. Do not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of the sojourner because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Don't oppress them. 
Don't turn your ear off to the cries of the oppressed. That's that's in the the body of what um, what would be called the civil laws of those, whether it's six hundred and thirteen mitzvah or whatever. But there's principles in that that we can draw out. I think that uh, you know, yeah, with refugees coming here to the states, um, you know, it's uh, they have gone through unbelievable hardship. They are fleeing persecution and danger and, and sword persecution on the basis of race, race, ethnicity, religion. So, so what ought we to do? Well, I think that we ought to care for them. So there's anyway, so sorry to get sidetracked, but there's principles that we can draw out of all of that. Um, and I'm sorry it's not an easy answer that, well, you should do the, the first 17 and not the last, you know, 360 of them. I, I don't think it's that simple. Mm. I think um, the word of God is a scalpel. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a machete, you mm-hmm. know. It's not something we ought to bludgeon each other with. I think we ought to read it, think through it. What is that saying? You know, like I've I've talked before about a hermeneutic when it comes to the word of God, that them, us, and me. What you know? How am I gonna? How am I gonna? How am I gonna understand it? How am I gonna apply it to those who are first hearing it, to us as the people of God today, and lastly to to myself. Um, so anyway, I don't know if I answered your question, but mm. oh, I think that it, um, I think that it was great, and I I love the challenge that it is to try and reflect upon the Levitical or the civil law and boil down or distill these principles that you do think still remain. And I I think I'm inclined to agree with you. There's underlying principles that are true to the heart of God that were instituted at a particular time and a place for a purpose that is good, that leads towards flourishing, that leads towards community rather than isolation, mm. leads towards justice rather than oppression. It's a counterweight to our our human propensity towards selfishness, violence, division, tribalism, whatever it may be, um, that that do apply. And then the task, the task of faith, the challenging task of faith for each of us is to then figure out how to translate and apply that right in our, our own context, which you just laid out there for that, you know, you, that helpful hermeneutic of, of them, us, me. And, and that's an application in terms of understanding. I've said, said this before a billion times. So sorry if your ears are bleeding friends, but <laughs> you know, to understand it, if you think of it as, as two hands with, with one hand, it's looking at the text, the context, and the whole text. That's the, the hand of understanding. Hmm. Then the other hand is application to them, to us, and to me. But I think that we need to go through that process. You know, it's not a laborious one. You sort of um, becomes a shorthand way. But just reading something off the page and saying, well, it says that the child who is disobedient ought to be stoned. So, okay, kids outside... You know that that I'm like no no no. What was the what was the context? What does the text really say? What is the context of it? What does the whole Bible say? The whole text. What is the so anyway? It's a big uh, you know interpretative or hermeneutical discussion. That mm. Nick, I thought that passage was talking about marijuana. <laughs> right. <laughs> I kid. I kid. Uh, <clears throat> You know, one of the challenging things, uh, and this is what I love about what Jesus does, is, uh, you know, he's continuing in his conversation here with the Pharisees. He is rebuking in many ways and upending or subverting 
what is known as the tradition of the elders. <clears throat> and he's, uh, he is in many ways bringing it back to the heart of the matter, which is the heart of the individual. And that is something that requires, that we talked about earlier, our, um, our propensity to, what is it? Subcontract responsibility, mm. um, out. And it, the more I reflect on it, the more I, I really believe like, <laughs> yeah, the, the spiritual life is, um, it's one that's filled with a lot of paradoxes, uh, mm. because we run into situations where it's not easily apparent what the right thing is to do. And mm. so I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit. How do we navigate the paradoxes in life? How do we take, uh, how do we balance our own sense of individual responsibility or, or sensitivity to the moral law and um, like moral absolutes? Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, what I'd first say is I'm, I'm not persuaded that the best decisions are made by thinking really hard in the moment. Of course, we ought to think really hard in the moment that a big decision comes. Of course, we ought to. But the best decisions are, are made because of years and years of walking with the Lord, of seeking godly counsel, of of um, of uh, being in spiritual submission to those who God has called us to be in spiritual submission to, by the way, not a favorite one of Western Christians, but I absolutely believe that. And so it's years and years of walking humbly with the Lord, then pressure point comes, big decision comes, uh, inevitably it's going to lead to better decisions. Um, you know, more often, uh, if we've been walking with the Lord like that, but the, the thing that you're asking about is, um, is, yeah, it's, it's called, it's called moral, uh, dilemmas when, um, could it be? And it's a it's a it's a it's a subset of systematic theology. It's under um, ethical theology, um, and and in in particular, uh, what's called uh, deontological ethics. Anyway, but but it talks about. So, what about when it appears like one uh, moral absolute in the Bible appears to conflict with another? Here, they created a false one with the Corban thing in. Mm-hmm. in, in in Matthew seven, you know, but but there are some times when it it really does appear to conflict, um, say such as um, you know lying because we're told to you know not bear false witness, so not to lie, <laughs> and and yet um, caring for human life. So <clears throat> you know the the typical example that's usually given is in the extreme of you know, Nazis knocking on the door and are there Jews in the house? And what do you say if you're a Christian, you know? Uh, and um, and so, and, and there's different ways that people have dealt with that. There's, I don't know, four or five or six or something like that, different. Um, there's a one called antinomianism that says that, that the law doesn't apply, anyone can do whatever they want. I think that's self evidently pretty pretty ridiculous you know there's one um i think it's called situationism which says we ought to do in any circumstance what love would lead us to do like what is the most loving thing to do and i think that that one is better than the first one but i think it can can leave us a little to our own devices and i i think it feels a bit flimsy there's one called conflicting absolutism 
and some guys like Helmut Thielicke and a guy uh, early on, at least Don Carson talked about this, where, where, um, or like the pirate argument, you choose the lesser of two weevils, you know, um, you, you, you do the thing which is least bad and then seek God's forgiveness later on. I think that's ethically problematic um, because to say that God would lead us into a situation where the only way out is to sin, I just don't think he's mean. I don't think he's capricious like that. Mm. Um, there's a, another one, and this is, this is probably the most common one today. guy, Norm Geisler, talks about this, and it's, it's called uh, graded absolutism, that, that, um, which defies the concept of absolute. But anyway, you know, that, that some things are more important than others. So in that instance, the um, caring for someone's life is more important than the importance of telling the truth. Not that telling the truth is unimportant, but in that circumstance, it's more important. The and uh, <laughs> sorry for this gigantic monologue here, but um, the uh, there's there's a guy who I studied under Gordon Conwell um, called Walter Kaiser, and he talks about uh, and many others too, Rake Straw and such talk about uh, non-conflicting absolutes that that God will never put us in a position where we have to choose. And what I mean by that is kind of like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, you know, you've told us that we must bow down to to this idol or you'll throw us in the fiery furnace. We will not bow down. You should throw us in the fiery furnace and our God uh, will save us. But even if he does not save us, we will not bow down, you know. And uh, I know it sounds extreme, Um but uh, but that's probably the the position that I that I take. I, I don't. I, I see the merits, and you know, it's all little tiny little bits of um, theological ethics here, and gradations of difference and such like that. Um, but that's that's probably the the position that that I that I would take is non conflicting absolute. So I, I think that um, I think that it's an enduring absolute to tell the truth. And funnily enough, there's a story I heard about. Um, in that exact circumstance about, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, knock, 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 any Jews in the house. And and uh, two circumstances. One, the woman said, yes, they're under the table. And the Nazis came in and walked around and looked under the table and walked out. And she'd been telling the truth because actually they were under the table, under the mat in the basement. So she was telling the truth, but just not as they saw it. Um, or another one where, where the woman looked at the... Uh, the officer in the eye and, and said, you're an officer in our nation's army and you know the right thing to do and just stared there and looked at him and he turned around and walked off. Or there's times where, you know, where we can fight, rise up and take arms um, in that circumstance. So anyway, I, yeah, massive uh, sidetrack, but there we go. <laughs> well, I think, uh, well, thanks for taking us on that uh, theological, theologically ethical uh, path of nerdiness and enlightenment. <laughs> uh, it's fun to let you get, get to give you an opportunity to wave your nerd flag. Actually, in the in the notes online, I put a very very boring paper that I'd written on that. If anyone is out there having trouble with uh, you know with sleeplessness, just read a uh, you know, page of that, and it'll put you straight to sleep. <laughs> you know. Um, there's a handful of people out there who, upon whom it will have the opposite effect. So, um, 
if that's you, you know who you are and you know where to find it. And if not, then email Nick at northcoastcalvary.org and he'll, he'll uh, oblige. Well, hey, uh, Nick, thanks for the conversation. I think I want to end on uh, there's a phrase that you and I have talked about for years. Um, and I, I, we always it's always attributed to the Moravians. Yeah. Um, but we can never entirely remember. I feel like maybe even on the podcast with you at a different time, we've discussed this. But uh, you know it in Latin. I can never remember it in Latin. <laughs> I just remember. I can only remember it in Latin. <laughs> but uh, you mean you're talking about uh, in necessaris unitas, in mm-hmm. dubis libertas, omnibus caritas. It means in the necessary things, unity. Mm. In the secondary things, uh, love. Or, or in the secondary things, freedom, actually, libertas. Mm-hmm. And in everything, love. Sorry, that's what it is. Yeah. Necessary things, unity. Secondary things, freedom. In, in everything love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. And of course, the conflict uh, between individuals and between groups always comes uh, about the boundary line between mm. what is necessary. What is necessary. And what right. is, is not. So that's a, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road. But the uh-huh. thing that I do love, um, the thing that I do love about that is that for us as practicing Christians, um, there, there really are only a handful of things that everybody agrees falls into that central category Mm. and uh, whatever the rest may be um, and where you may fall in ascribing their, their importance. The main thing is that we are to be people who are characterized as people of of love. So whether you agree with somebody as uh, about something being of necessary or central importance, Mm. um, the way in which you disagree it should still should should never dishonor the person, nor should ever dishonor God. Yeah, our speech should be filled with grace and salt. We should give no reason for outsiders to find offense in the way that we hold to our convictions, and that's something that I think is is really important for us um, in our present cultural moment. Yeah, well, because the ultimate ethic is is love, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's not just that we disagree, because of course we disagree. I, I'm not only going to have communion or unity with those um, with whom I agree on everything because, my goodness, I wouldn't agree with myself from six or 12 months ago, Mm. um, let alone somebody else, you know, because hopefully we're always being sanctified and and growing in the Lord and not in big things but in small things. I guess I've reconsidered things, you know, over time and thought, well, you know, I'll move a degree to the left or the right on on that one. but it, it's not so much that we disagree, it's how we disagree. That's mm-hmm. the thing that people see. And whether it's even, I would say, even on a necessary thing, right? And that's, um, I don't get to decide who is in Christ and who is outside of Christ. I, On the basis of the word of God, I can have a, a pretty good guess on it, but it's, it's not for me ultimately to decide that. But if I'm having a discussion with someone um, and they're from a, a quasi-Christian cult. Um, surely, me speaking the truth in love for guys like me, emphasis on love. For some of you out there, needs to be emphasis on truth. But speaking the truth, underlined in, underlined love. Um, that's what is going to be the most striking thing for them. That's what's going to move them uh, closer towards Christ. I think if we can do that. Then, uh, then I think this passage, and in fact our uh, life and spirituality, is 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 moving in the right direction. Mm. 
perfect ending point. Nick, <laughs> thanks so much for the conversation this week and uh, just for being the delightful human that you are. Great to be with you, mate. All right. <laughs> See you soon. See you soon. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Just Follow Jesus podcast. For more information about the series or our church, you can visit northcoastcalvarychapel.org. We also still have some copies of a special coffee table quality journal that we designed and put together to accompany this series in the Gospel of Mark. This whole podcast is a resource of North Coast Calvary Chapel. It's produced and directed by Joseph Carlson. The editing has been done by Nate King, and the music is by the one and only Brian McMaster. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.